0: Welcome to On the Line with the AMA, the official podcast of the American Motorcyclist Association. I'm Alexandra Terhorst. On today's show, we're talking with Hall of Famers Dick Burleson and Gunnar Lindström. Lindström is a Swedish-born rider best known for ushering in the sport of motocross in America. Burleson is revered for his eight consecutive AMA National Enduro Championships and eight consecutive ISDT Gold Medals. Although both rose to prominence racing for Husqvarna, they discovered motorcycling in very different ways. Even as a young man, Lindstrom had Husqvarna in his sights.
1: I was a farm boy. I grew up on a farm. And I didn't really participate in farming every day. I I was a kid. I went to school. And I was expected to be running the farm after my parents had uh, retired. So I dutifully went to farm school and I was riding motocross at the time. And if we were near Husqvarna, I mean, we lived within 40 minutes of the factory itself and we all envisioned their factory bikes and how exotic and fast they were in Torstenholmen and other people at Rolf Tibblin. So I went there and I said, you know, what about getting a job here? You know, and I finally got to talk to a person and he said, no, we're only hire engineers. So I quit farm school the next week and signed up for engineering courses, and uh, luckily I got accepted uh, in the fall because I had a vacancy in, in, at that particular school, and I took four years of engineering. And then I ran over to Husqvarna and says, I'm an engineer now, hire me, hire me, <laughs> and they pretty much said, Eh, you know, maybe I remember you, but we can hire you in on, the, on a temporary basis at first. We do need somebody to ride the new military bike. We need to put 200 miles a day on the military bike. So that became my first job at Husqvarna. I was you know,
2: barely accepted to ride the military bike. That's how I started. My dad, he wanted me to be a concert pianist.
0: That's Dick Burleson, whose path to motorcycling was a little more roundabout.
2: I practiced piano all the time and went to these recitals and did all that stuff. But it was him. It wasn't me. It didn't come from my heart. I I was a good technician, but I didn't didn't love it. And I I talked him into letting me get a Honda S90 to get a job when I was 18 to go to to work. I had a job working at the water pump, the city water works down on the beach in St. Joe. And the best way to get there is, to, is down the old little Banner River tracks and across the dunes. And, and that's where I started riding, finding my way through the woods and finding it down to work. And that was how how I kind into letting me get that Honda. And then when I went away to college, I never played a piano again. When I was living in Ann Arbor, when I was going to school, North Campus wasn't developed. And it was just rolling hills. Well, that was when you met the nicest people on Honda. Everybody in the world wanted to ride a dirt bike. You could go out there any day of the week, the North Campus area, and there'd be 50 people or more scrambling around. That was the good days when everybody wanted to ride dirt bikes. Here's the story how I landed in, in America in the first place. So I
1: was racing in New Zealand, of all places, and down there was J.N. Roberts. And the long story to how he landed there, but you know, uh, we raced motocross, and he, of course, was not really a motocross guy, so we had a deal. I would try to teach him what I knew about motocross. He would teach me English, and we had all kinds of funny stories. There was a song called Big Bad John, and Big Bad John he ran into the mine and he held up, you know, the the the, uh, the mine so that everybody could escape, and then he he let, was left in there by himself, and that was the end of the line for Big Bad John. And and Jan said, Gunner, Gunner, do you know what that means? He's dead. He's dead. <laughs> 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 was my first lesson, but from J.N. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's a good one. Yeah. So, you know, back in those days, I think I, and before the Husky, I had a CZ, which was good. It had its problems, but it was, it was good. But then, then, I, uh, you know, in a roundabout way, I was roommates with Jack Leto and Jack and I got kind of hooked up with Frank Pisaki down in Toledo, who he was an old Adoro buddy of John Penn, And so we, we started working for Frank, and that's when we got involved in the Husky thing and uh, could see right off the bat that those were the best motorcycles. They were pricey at the time. What was one gunner, 1200 bucks or something like that back in the day. Well,
1: they were less than that when we started, but when they got over a thousand bucks retail, we had a crisis meeting in New Jersey, thinking that would anybody ever buy a motorcycle that would cost it more than a thousand bucks. And yeah. uh, we said, you know, there's nothing we can do. We have to charge what we have to charge. And yeah, of course, yeah. I did they did buy them? But that was that oh, was yeah. a critical point. I came here in '69 in uh, to stay, more or less, even though I didn't have a, a, more than a three-month visa at a time. But I traveled enough back and forth, in
2: and out. It did. I came in '69 and stayed. And I think the first time I met you was. Didn't you put on a, like a riding clinic up at Hill or something? I did. Was that the one where there was snow all over? Right. And Ward got out his dozer and cleared off the track? That was awesome. Before that time, like I, I was racing scrambles. When I was living in Ann Arbor, when I was going to school, motocross basically didn't exist in this at that time. And we were doing scrambles up until the, the interim came. That was kind of the first stuff where we saw real motocross racing.
1: But when yeah. did you ride the husqvarna the first time in in uh, anger, so to speak?
2: When the Trans Am series was was gonna happen, my buddy Sid Wells down in Detroit, he loaned me five hundred bucks for part of the payment to get a Husky. I think we wrote, we rode half the races on a two hundred fifty and half on a three sixty or whatever the open one was it And somehow I could hold a motor so I had one bike and one and a spare motor. And that, that was basic because I'd, I'd ridden six days before that, but on a pen. 73, I rode a little Husky. I rode a 175 Husky, which was probably slower than the 125. I don't know if you remember, Gunna, they, they uh the Swedish team brought over some pretty nice motorcycles for the six days in uh, New England up at Berkshire Mountains.
1: Yeah, 73, of course
2: in 73 you know and and uh well but they bombed out they they drowned their bikes out in the river and whatever and and we lucked out Well, i not lucked out we had a good team elke myself eddie schmidt and ronnie Bond. we had a good team and we ended up winning the silver silver boss that year well when we got back to lorraine uh, there was a i think it was a 350 piston port mag motor that was one of the swedish race bikes so i scanned that thing and i went to a enduro in i don't know missouri or whatever and, and i've been riding little bikes well i got that big husky and i was magical i won that race boom just like that yeah. i'm like what so then i thought well i'll go to another one boom i won that one i won the last three national enduros that year just because that bike was so good and it just Suited me so well. That was really the start of my off-road career. Was that bike? The motors, the motocross start was obviously was a Trans Am. I hadn't ridden a Husky before a Trans Am. The
1: 360 was the what we called the small engine, as opposed to the big engine that we had a year before. So that was a whole new, you know, engine. And that that is the engine we should have had all along in the first place, rather than K72, yeah. which was a really a misstep for, for Husqvarna and set us back in, in many ways. Uh,
2: in every way, it set us back years. Oh, you know, I, I remember I had a I had a four-speed that I was racing and I got one of the five-speeds. Uh, as I recall, it was one of the early ones. And so I let, I think it was Charlie Vincent, I let him ride my four-speed while I rode the five-speed. That bike was so much faster. <laughs> I'm like, oh, he killed me. I was like, Wait a minute! Oh, yeah, I think it was it was a really bad step backwards. You're you're absolutely yeah. right. And it
1: was one step ahead and two steps back.
2: Yeah. yeah,
1: design there, you know, not a very good. Yeah.
2: Thing.
1: So I mean, anyway, uh. yep. And you know, back back at the factory where I was at the time, you know, there were a lot of difference of opinion there about the the engine and the new engine five speed. is wonderful. Everybody will love it, but A lot of people there didn't really know how to, I mean, test riders and people that were able to ride them for a weekend, for example, they didn't really know how to convey negative and, and uh, I don't want to say bad news, but not so positive. I mean, up to that point we had been winning left and right everywhere. You know, the only argument we had was who was going to pay for dinner on Sunday night. And now suddenly we have a bike that doesn't cut it. And that's when, me personally and many others realized that we were young, we had been winning, you know we were great riders, and bikes were good, and everybody was but then how to deal with bad news, we didn't know how to do it, and I certainly didn't know how to come back and say, "You know, this is not working, we need to do something and and arguments ensued, you know, and we didn't know at the time how to deal with bad news.
0: As Burleson and Lindstrom honed their racing skills, their other talents were also emerging.
1: The 250 class, for a long time, that was sort of the premier class, it, you know, because Joel and Torsten and others, you know, they, they basically wanted to ride 250s in Europe. So that became, yeah. you know, and it took a few years with Roger and others for the big class to become the dominant class. And so I stuck with 250s for longer than I should have, really. And that was supposed to be, the, be what you wanted to do. And then the 360s and the 400s came, of course, and history from there.
2: The issue that you and I had in common was glasses. On the starts, it was an issue. And for people that still wear glasses, you can't wear glasses under goggles. It just basically doesn't work. Difficult. Very difficult. So it's, a lot of the times you can figure your way around it, but uh, when the conditions are really bad, it's, it's problematic the format of enduros gave me a little more opportunity to deal with it rather than just wide open on a motocross track you just don't have a chance to deal with it really because of
1: that you rode in a different way and uh, you know you pick certain lines to uh, protect yourself from roost more than other people did so and you had a fogging problem also if it was raining you know that would fog up
0: yeah so yeah. you
1: know there were all kinds of difficulties with with, with riding with glasses yeah, and yeah, you would sure. do your bike a certain way too. You had more protection, you know, on the front fender, you would protect yourself, you know, from spray from your own bike. You prepared in a little
2: different way as well. For me, it ended up, I, I did some more racing after that motocross racing, but I got tired of being at a track all day and getting to ride like two minute motos. That kind of, it got so, so popular. So all of a sudden I, I, I didn't get enough racing at all. Period. Right. So I—that's one of the one of the things that got me into racing off road. Between that that three three fifty, I think it was a three fifty class special piston size. But anyway, that's that Swedish trophy bike that got me into riding enduros, and the connection through Frank Piszeki with John. I just started riding enduros.
1: You did much more than just ride enduros. You had some sort of a technical center, I believe that. Because I was gone from Husky at the time, uh, were you had talked to dealers to resolve technical issues?
2: That office. I mean, we were. We initially we had we were doing warehouse and some bikes, and 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 we were. It was a different time. We were we were answering technical questions. We talked to d- retail customers and tell them, yeah, these forks are terrible. Here's what you got to do. And and so we were on one side. We were racing the bikes. When I say we, I had a couple other guys working for me. If We'd figure out solutions and then pass them out. But yeah, at that time, then basically I got responsibility for the the racing programs, whether it was California or in Ohio or whatever, and warranty and service stuff. There was never a time when I was just a racer. Back in those days, that didn't exist. You work on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, usually drive away Friday night or something and go race on the weekend and come back and back to work on Monday and that was the way it was back in those days. We just did our best, to, and we did a good job. I have to, I have to say, when I say we, I mean, our race teams did. We were, we were racing and winning long after the bikes were not as good as some of the other bikes.
1: As a matter of fact, the statistics are telling us that the year before I scored going to move to Italy, so to speak, before Kajiba bought him out, that was your best year. You won Baja, you won endurance, you won... You won Derushin, oh, it's it's, everything So
2: yeah, we we were in every
1: successful years of Husqvarna ever in the U.S. market, and partly because of you, I have to say, because you were the one leading the technical brigade
2: at the time, as I understand it. it. It's hard not to want to win races yourself, but the job was to sell motorcycles, and I understood that. But I also knew that I wasn't going to do that for the rest of my life. So, so I hired up the best other guys. And was able to keep the thing going for, I would say, seven years. We kept it going with winning races while I was managing all that to help sell bikes. And it worked. I mean, to a certain degree, it did work. When I worked with and of course, it was frustrating at times. And we had a hard
1: time forming strong teams that could... That we'd all go pull in the same direction and go and get something done. And I had my own vision, I guess you could say. I had in my mind, this is this is really how this should work. We have the writers, we have other people that do testing, and we have engineers. We have all the facilities, and why shouldn't they work together? And why shouldn't we work in a certain way? And unfortunately, it didn't happen when I was with Husky. And then eventually, many years later, well, four, I joined Honda. And one of the first things I learned that. They worked exactly the way that I thought we should have worked in the first place. And, you know, that that sold me as a matter of fact with a new brand saying, you know, I said, this is really the way we should have worked all along. Everybody gets together. We set a target. We set a goal. We hand out a yeah. and go. And that's exactly what we did at Honda. And it was very satisfying to work with a company like that. Even though I was thrown into management. A little bit too soon, I think. I was still too young to be a real experienced manager, but I know the technical side of things, and, and that's where I ended up concentrating into the first few years. Eventually, of course, I moved to the automotive side, which is a whole different deal. But on the motorcycle yeah. side, you know, there was a lot of things happening, water cooling, single shock suspension, progressive linkage. All of that stuff happened, not during my watch, but while I was there. Very rewarding.
2: I got, I got to throw in here that Gunner's a much better engineer than me. I graduated as a smart guy in college and stuff, but I got sidetracked racing dirt bikes, you know, and and I stayed into it. But that time, you know, roughly 10 years almost, I wasn't doing any real engineering. I was doing managing and other racing and service technical stuff. But the engineering for Husky was done in Sweden. And uh, we we were given feedback, but not when you you went to Hunter. You're doing real engineering.
0: As interest in motorcycling exploded across America, Burlson and Lindstrom followed different paths, but their passion for motorcycling remained strong.
2: Fortunately, I got involved with Parts Unlimited in the early 90s, helped them develop the Moose product line, which was, we started basically on you know, a blank piece of paper and it's it's a big business now. And I'm helping them with that program as an outside contractor for going on 26 years or something. But that was one of the lessons I learned when the Kajiva deal killed the Husky deal. And I was 40 years old going to collect unemployment. And I'm like, mm, I don't want to do this again. So ever since then, I've never worked for anybody else as a as an employee. Like I'm not gonna put all my eggs in a basket of one corporation. They decide they don't want to do it anymore. You're out. And that's just uh that was kind of one of the big lessons there, whether it was good or bad, I don't know, you know, you know, we we're we're happy. So it kinda of worked out. Well here's the thought,
1: you know, when I worked with Honda, I stayed with the company for thirty years. And great company and a great product, great people and, and uh a lot of good engineers we got to meet. And a lot of good discussions were had. And you know, like I said, before we had a meeting, we had set the target and everybody walked and ran in the same direction. And it was very satisfying.
0: In the life of a motorcycle racer, sometimes just getting to the race is half the fun.
1: And I remember you had an El Camino and you had um, numerous arguments with people on the toll road
2: thinking that you had a truck, and you said, you know, this is not a truck. It was a 64 El Camino, baby blue, 283, four-speed, positive traction. That was a nice little wannabe truck. Not really a truck, but yeah. <laughs> I can't believe you remember that. That thing was so nice. I wish I still had it. You came to the track in the house one time and said, you cannot believe this, but they wouldn't let me on the through. <laughs> <laughs> before before that i had a buick convertible and i had to put the top down and stick the bike in there the el camino was a way big step up (laughs) you had built yourself a little aluminum trailer that you were dragging around behind your mercedes that it was full it was so euro it was great the the center revenue was low and it sat down low i thought we should patent that
1: oh we all did it back there everybody built their own trailer in, in Europe, and the time after your career was over, you would always ask somebody, how many trailers did you build in your career? And, you know, one, two, three, everybody built their own trailer, basically to the same, you know, recipe, so to speak. They all looked the same, give or take.
2: Yeah. And my number is three,
1: I built three trailers.
2: Uh, well, in, in this country, it's advanced, you know. I, I think I've worn out at least 15, maybe 20 vans over the years, <laughs> every bit, every bit of that, you know, cause back at well, yeah, the carbureted vans, they 100,000 miles, they're done. But those things just didn't last where the new stuff lasts, but that was, you know, and that's what I for the trans AMA. I had that old 40 tunnel line, stuffed in there, lived in there, had bikes in there, tools, riding gear, you know, and then that's that's how you went to the races. When somebody showed up with a motorhome, it was like, whoa, these guys are big guys, you know?
1: We are in Daytona for 71, the first race at
2: Daytona. And
1: of course, they had the staff there and people there were wondering, you know, who are these guys? They're going to ride on the infield, you know, and it was a lot of, of uh, question marks and a lot of concern for what would happen there. So we are all parked. Outside the little tiny little tunnel, now they have a big tunnel, but there was there's a one tunnel they had at the time, and we all parked there in the grass on Friday waiting to be let in. And there's this guy coming with a motorhome, a Winnebago, a real Winnebago with a W up front, and we're looking at this thing, and this guy. His name was Scott, and he was from Texas. I have no idea what his last name was. And this was his grandfather's motorhome, you know, and we're looking at this thing. And Gary Bailey and I are walking circles around this thing. He said, you know what, this could be something, you know, something that just, this, this could work. So I'm asking yeah. Scott, you know, we be, we became a little friendly there and I talked to him He says, can I drive it? He says, oh yeah, no problem. So we drove it out on interstate eight or four, interstate four, just figured this really works well. And so we parked, you know, and, and he said, thank you. And, I beat Gary Bailey by a few months. I, had, I think I had the first motorhome of all the motorcos people. I bought it in the, right by the airport in Cleveland, Ohio. There was a dealer there that sold Pritzer machinery, and they sold the a demo they had, you know, for the motorhome. And Mr. Farnstrom paid for it, and he said, you know, I'm going to get you back on this money. <laughs> so that, was, uh. And, of course, <laughs> Bailey was right behind The Bailey had the real Winnebago. But that's how that started, and that's how we got going there.
0: Looking back, each man enjoyed a successful career in the motorcycling industry and with it, a perspective on the future of the sport. Perhaps Dick Burleson captures their sentiment best.
2: My personal opinion, having been in this industry since, what, 72, is is that it's a great family sport. It's a great family sport. In this day and age of video games, those aren't family sports. Kids are not involved in ways with their parents that's really productive. Motorcycling really isn't, isn't a need. It's more of a want, but it's yeah. good family entertainment. It keeps the kids together, keeps the kids doing stuff. They get physical activity. They're out, with, they with their parents. What more do you want?
0: Hall of Famers Dick Burleson and Gunnar Lindstrom. Read more about them and other motorcycling greats at MotorcycleMuseum.org. On the Line with the AMA is a production of the American Motorcyclist Association. Since 1924, the AMA has been promoting the motorcycle lifestyle and protecting the future of motorcycling. Learn more at AmericanMotorcyclist.com.